pastors that come forward this time this morning.
It's an old song because we're young people. But it's called The Haven of Rest. It's a beautiful old song to me. Uh, listen to words and not how to sing a few words. Before we get started this morning, I want to talk to you for just a second about something else. 
we're going to do the message in just a moment, but about the, about the next month, I won't be here. Our deacons, yeah, it's pretty scary when the deacons come to see you here now. You don't know what it's about or anything else. You get pretty nervous. Julie's already started packing when you heard what's coming. But as it turns out, most of you know that I've had some health issues now for almost a year. And it just, uh, I can't seem to get over it. And so what they suggested, and I've accepted, is to take a month off. Not leaving. We're not going anywhere else. We may go see our grandkids or something, but that, that doesn't change. But it's uh, because of the health issues that I had, and I know you've noticed some of them, and it just, uh, I don't think I gave myself a chance when I was in the hospital back several months ago to really recover. And so they came up with a suggestion just to take off for a month. And so we, that doesn't mean we won't be here. We may come in and just visit, but we, I won't be preaching for at least that long, at least four or five weeks. I forget what it was exactly. But I just want to let you know that uh, we're not leaving. You're not going to run us off out of here. But it's, uh, I thank God for our deacons that came and saw a problem and wanted to fix it. And so I do appreciate it. See, I only had this morning about six feet of you. Anyway, there, there's, there we go. There's one back there. So. <laughs> But it's, uh, oh, yeah, those two, well, those two up there don't count, so yes. <laughs> but I just want to let you know, so in case you heard something, we're not leaving the church unless y'all decide to branch off. Then you're going to have to go with us because I'm not leaving yet. But anyway, but it just, uh, it's because of my health, and I don't seem to be getting any better in a lot of ways. And you've seen, seen me stumble and fall over the words lately, and it just it's time to address it and do something about it. So I've got doctor's appointments all through the next month, so just know that I'll be I'll be around and going to doctors. But anyway, I just want to let you know that, and just in case you heard something, we're not we're not leaving as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I told them so I plan on retiring at 104, and so that's that's my plans now. Whether God lets me do that or not, I don't know. But it's uh, but I was just want to let the church know, and just to you know, just in case you hear anything else or whatever, just to let you know. But, Anyway, it's good to, be here, good to be here this morning. We've got a good crowd here this morning. And so, I just want to let you know that and uh, understand where it's coming from and so forth. Uh, I did not honestly take care of myself when I had that hospital, two hospital stays recently and back some months ago. And this time I'm determined to do it right and get it over with and get back in the swing of things. So, it just, that's, that's what I wanted to share with you today. Anyway, if you will, get your Bibles and turn with me, with me to 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. If you will, when you get that, stand with me as we read God's Word together. Now, this is commendable. It's because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you, if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For for this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. 
For when he was reviled, did not return, revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Let's stop there and go to the Lord and pray. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for these words you've just given us. So, Lord, each one of us can take them to heart and just apply them in our lives. And, Lord, we will suffer in different ways as we go through life. So, Lord, we just pray that you just guide our thoughts, that we always would have you at our heart and just in our mind. Lord, go with us now through this next few minutes. Be with us. Guide our thoughts. Guide our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Suffering. Walk in His shoes is the name of this powerless message. We just read that passage there. But you know, I'm a little bit reluctant to speak on the topic, topic of suffering. Because I heard about a preacher one day that used this very passage one time, and the next day a lady sent him a letter in the mail, and it said, Pastor, I didn't really know what suffering was until I heard you preach. Now I know. So if you take it that way, that's not the way I intended it. If it affects you that way, just keep your letters to yourself, please. I know we have some golfers in our congregation. I don't know if you're sitting here or not, but, but I'm not one of them. I've never been a golfer. In fact, when we was at a church up in Paris, Texas, I had a, a good one of our deacons. You know what deacons are good for. But anyway, we won't go there. But he was always trying to get me. He said, you need to relax. And so finally one day he come by and said, I'm going to take you out. One Sunday night, I'm coming by in the morning. We'll pick you up. We're going to go play golf. It's going to teach you how to relax. I said, I don't want to play golf. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, uh, you, know, you got this little ball. It's right there in front of you. Knock it half a mile and go pick it up. That's not a game to me. But anyway, he come by, picked me up. In fact, gave me a set of clubs. I'd never used a golf club in my life other than throw it things. He come by and we went out the golf course. We spent about 45 minutes, and finally he takes his golf clubs and just throws them on the ground. He said, I don't believe it. So I've taught people that play golf all of my adult life, but I can't teach you. And I thought, good, let's go home. <laughs> I didn't want to do this anyway. But it, I know we've got golfers in the crowd, or maybe you like to just occasionally play golf or this kind of thing, whatever it is, but I'm not one of them. I've got better things to do than play golf. God didn't give me the patience or the temperance to play golf. So I just left it at that, left it alone. But I recently read a story about Payne Stewart. Now, again, I've heard the name because I know he's a golfer. He was a golfer. He won his second United States Open Championship. So he was a good golfer, obviously. But on July 25th, 1999, Payne Stewart was one of the most recognizable golfers on the PGA. He lived in Orlando, Florida, and his two children attended the Christian school at Florida First Baptist Church, Orlando. Their homework included Bible study. So they began to talk to their father about the Bible and becoming a Christian. And it wasn't too long after that that he made the transformation. He surrendered his life to Christ. Now, that's a good thing because he was killed in a plane crash not long after that. Him and five, the five people with him. And so, he began to wear, just shortly before he died in the plane crash, a bracelet that said WWJD. 
I'm sure you've seen him. What did Jesus do? And he began to wear that and wear it proudly. He began to go to church. He began to teach his kids and so forth and, and be with them in all these good things of quality life. But he lost his life not long ago. In fact, I believe it's three months ago. I remember that correctly. Payne got on a jet to fly to Dallas. He never made it because a plane crashed in South Dakota. Again, killing all five people, passengers on board, him included. Because of his newfound faith in Jesus, his family and friends are certain that Payne Stewart was, is in heaven today. And I believe they're right. On his funeral, the PGA players, professional golf players, who attended were all given WWJD bracelets to wear. Now, I don't know if they kept wearing them. I don't know if they wear them today. I have no idea. But you might think that WWJD originated back in the 90s when it was so popular. But that's not the case. Everybody was wearing the bracelet. WWJD. It was a popular thing. Kids were wearing them. Teenagers were wearing them. Adults were wearing them. So forth. But the question is, what would Jesus do was first popularized over a hundred years earlier by a pastor from Topeka, Kansas named Charles Sheldon. In 1896, Charles Sheldon wrote the book in his step. Probably you've read it, or a lot of you have. We have it. It's a beautiful book for me to pick up from. We probably have one here at the church if you want to go to the library and look for it. I, I don't know that. I didn't confirm it, but I would, I would bet it's in there anyway. But anyway, it's uh, in his step. The chapters in the book are actually story sermons. He shared with members of the Central Congregational Church. The fictional story was about a young, unemployed man who moved to a community to find a job. Most of the members of the local church considered him a sinner and didn't even want him to be part of the church. One Sunday, the young man asked to speak to the congregation. As he stood before them, like right in front of us, down here, as we do many times. As he stood before them, he was sick and hungry. But nobody offered him anything. Finally, he asked the question, what would Jesus do? Then he took his hands and put them on the table, like right in front of him. And he collapsed. That's a fictional story. He doesn't matter. But I couldn't help but think how true that probably is of a lot of people. They come to a church that are looking for something. And because they don't dress the proper way, or look the proper way, or have their hair combed the proper way, or whatever it may be, many times we turn our backs on them. And we leave them. I don't think we've ever had anybody to follow the dead in our church. At least not that I know of anyway. Maybe go to sleep and not wake up and let the service over. That's different. But it's, but it's, it's so, the church members were so shaken, they began to ask themselves the question, what would Jesus do? The simple question changed their lives, their church, their community. It's a classic story Every Christian should read if you haven't read it. Now, it's fictional. But it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And it 
make us think, wait a minute, what are we doing with people coming to our door? What are we doing when they walk down the aisle and sit on one of these seats? Many of us, many times, get up and go out the door and they're still up sitting there all by themselves, never spoken to or anything else. What did Jesus do in that situation? So what does it mean to walk in the steps of Jesus? In all the Bible, the phrase, follow his steps, only appears one time. And it's used in connection in the context, let me rephrase that, using the context of suffering. Suffering is all through the Word of God, if you haven't noticed. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 24 that we just read, as we talk about what it means to walk in His steps, let's study the footprints of Jesus, first of all, so we can see what's going on. When you examine His footprints, you'll find they're filled with three different elements. Number one, his footprints are filled with pain. He experienced pain in many, many ways during the course of his life. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, we read, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. First step, understanding that Jesus is my pattern to react to suffering. The question, what would Jesus do? doesn't work in every situation. First of all, we may not know what Jesus would do. Because he was always doing things the opposite of what people expected him to do. He was keeping on the feet all the time, keeping on the toes. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? As he began to teach, he may not even say what they were expecting him to say. In addition, if we knew what Jesus would do, that doesn't mean we could do what Jesus could do. For instance, when Jesus saw his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, he simply walked on the water to where they were and met them. If you're fishing, and I know we've got some fishermen out here. Now, I'm not a fisherman. Never have been. Wouldn't know a catfish from a tuna fish. Well, maybe from the tent. I don't think I'd say. But, <laughs> but it, 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 what would Jesus do? But that doesn't necessarily mean I could do what Jesus did. Even if I wanted to, the only time we can be sure, 100% sure, that we can ask and answer the question, what would Jesus do, is when he was suffering. Think about this. When he was suffering, we could do what Jesus did at that time. That's good to know because from the cradle to the grave, our lives are full of suffering. Every one of them. If you haven't suffered, get rid of your fishing tape. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be a major thing. That doesn't mean it's going to take your life away or something like that. You could. But that's not what he's talking about. No one is exempt. Chances are you know someone close to you today that are dealing with physical or emotional pain right now in their life. Probably people in this church who are having physical or emotional pain. Right now, as we speak, little Brody that was mentioned a while ago, Barbara's great grandson, just went through a terrible surgery, a brain surgery. He's four years old, and this is how many, two or three? At least. And he's got to go back to nurse. This little boy knows what suffering is. He's four years old. The 
my first question is, why, God, why did you do this? Now he's doing good, but he will have to go back. Uh, what do you say? Next. Okay, so he'll be at least ten days, and hope to come back, and then maybe things will improve. But it was a very tedious. It's in the brain. They had to go in this little boy's brain to take care of it. He's suffering. I don't. Yes, he's suffering in many ways. But yet, why do we do that? Why do we have to do that? His footprints were also filled with pain. Job writes in Job chapter 5, verse 7, Man is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Have you ever been watching a bonfire or something like and all the sparks just blowing up and so forth? That's called the law of thermodynamics. It observes that heat, heated air is lighter than oxygen. Therefore, the sparks fly up. You get around a campfire, around a bonfire, whatever, the sparks go up. It always does. That's nature. It's going to do that. There's another law woven in the fabric, fabric of humanity that says suffering is a part of our existence. Suffering is a part of our In this passage of Scripture that we just read, Peter identifies two different kinds of suffering. Some suffering may come as a result of my bad choices, your bad choices. Suffering sometimes comes because we messed up. We didn't do what we should have done. We didn't follow God's directions, if you want in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Peter, said, Peter asked the question, For what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We have a saying, If you do the crime, you've got to do the time. Nobody receives a good citizen reward for serving a month in jail for something they did. It just don't happen. But, at the same time, all bad choices have bad consequences. Some choices dumber than others. Now, I've, in my younger years, made a bunch of damn choices. But this guy took the cake when I read this. A few years ago in Louisiana, this is a true story, a few years ago in Louisiana, a guy walked into a liquor store with a shotgun and demanded the cash. After the cashier put the money in the bag, the robber pointed at a bottle of scotch behind the counter. He says, throw that in here, too. The cashier refused, saying, I don't believe you're 21 years old. So the robber pulled out his wallet and showed his driver's license to the cashier. She gave him the bottle of scotch. He left. She called the police with his address and everything else. Criminals are not too smart, folks. The second kind of suffering is undeserved suffering. In other words, when people say, That's not fair. I didn't deserve it. Have you ever been there? Sure, we have. Every one of us has probably many times. It's not deserved. 
that isn't fair. First Peter chapter 3, 19, we read, For this is commendable, if because of conscience, for God wanted you to agree suffering wrongfully. Did you catch that? Suffering wrongfully. There it is. Underline. Purple it. Highlight it. There's something in this world called unjust suffering. And we know it. We see it all over. Sometimes people are going to treat you in ways you do not deserve. Sometimes people are going to treat us wrong. Are going to harm us if, some, if they get the chance. I saw a little cartoon in a magazine some time ago. And had these two men standing out in front of an exhibition hall like the World's Fair. You know, they got all the flags on the building, things like that. Upon reading the sign, one of the guys says, Oh, no, it's not. Life isn't fair. Look you out you is. Sometimes you suffer, and it's okay to recognize that you're not to blame. That's when you should walk in his steps, because that's exactly the way that Jesus suffered. He didn't deserve to go to the cross. He didn't deserve to be beaten beforehand. He didn't deserve to have those nails driven in his hands and feet. He didn't deserve that. footprints of Jesus are filled with blood. He has already suffered and showed us how to react. Now, we must walk in His steps, the Bible tells us. Sometimes our suffering comes not from a big crisis in life, but from the continual series of irritations that frustrate us. For instance, I saw this other day. I thought it was awful cute, so I'm going to use it. Here is some advice from an oyster. Everybody knows what an oyster is. Here's some advice from an oyster. There once was an oyster, oyster, whose story I tell, who found that a sand had gotten under his shell. What, just one little grain, but it gave him so much pain. For oysters have feelings, although they're so plain. Now, did he berate the harsh workings of fate that brought him to such a deplorable state? No, he said to himself, since I cannot improve it, I'll line myself and think how to improve it. So as the years rolled by, as the years always do, and he came to his ultimate, ultimate destiny, Jesus. And a small grain of sand which had bothered him so was a beautiful pearl out of this little blood. Now this pearl has a moral, for it is, for isn't it grand? What an oyster can do with a morsel of sand. Think what we could do if we'd only begin with some of the things that get under our skin. I thought that was a pretty good one. Point. Jesus gave us an example of how to deal with irritating people and irritating situations. He refused to strike back, first of all, at those who hurt him. He embraced the pain. And he turned his terrible suffering into the peace, the excuse me, the pearl of great price, our salvation. Jesus did that for us. The second thing we see real quick: his footprints are filled with endurance. First Peter chapter two verse twenty, we find that we how we should respond to suffering. Listen to what it says: 
when you do good and suffer, if you take it personally, this is commendable before God. So if you're going to walk in Jesus' footprint, you must pray the second step. I won't retaliate in such a person. Now we say that pretty easily. That's hard to do, folks. It's hard to turn your back after somebody has afflicted you. Even inside the church. Did you know that people try to tell what hurts the truth? I didn't know that. I won't retaliate when people hurt me. I don't know where it came from, but I heard a saying that fits this thought process. It says, human tragedy is like being plunged into boiling water. If you're like an egg, your pain will make you hard boiled. But if you're like a potato, you will emerge softer and more pliable. When trials and suffering and even tragedies come into your life, and they will, we need to say, God, let me be a potato. Make me pliable. Make me soft. Make me easy. What about you? When you face the boiling waters of suffering, are you more like an egg or are you more like a potato? Does the suffering make you bitter, harder, or does it make you soft? Does it make you better? You may not have any control over the suffering you face, but you do have the ability to control the way you react to suffering. We're all going to face some kind of suffering in our lifetime. It may be heart disease. It may be something else. It may be cancer for some. It could be many things. How do you react when you get that diagnosis? Some people get angry and say, that's not fair. I don't deserve that. You can't treat me that way. I'm going to do something about it. America's favorite sport is getting even. Did you know that? There's even a website called Revenge Unlimited where you can physically go on there and buy products to extract revenge on somebody who hurt you. What? Go look it up. Revenge Unlimited. You can buy tools to get mad at, to get even with somebody. I hope you don't do it, but you should. The benches in Yellowstone Park watched the grizzly bear one day. All the people gathered around. Of course, the bear was way down in the valley. You know, he wasn't in front of hunting in. But they gathered together on the hillside and watched this grizzly bear. And he was just, uh, he was feeding on garbage, like bears will. Two other bears tried to hope, and the grizzly ran them off. He was claiming that food or that garbage for himself. While he was chasing off the second bear, a skunk trotted out of the forest and started eating the bear's garbage. The bear returned and grumbled, but he didn't disturb the skunk. He understood the high cost of seeking revenge. A bear can kill a skunk easy, but it's not worth a thought. <laughs> revenge isn't sweet, it stinks. And revenge stinks in our lives, too. And yet so many Christians want to take revenge on somebody. 
and justifiably so sometimes. Things hurt me. Things said things about me. But it's not worth being redeemed. Redeemed things. The next thing we see real quick. Self-control reaction. Poor little me. I'll just have a pity party. Sink in my quicksand of self-pity. I'll just feel sorry for myself. This reaction is really anger turned inward, if you think about it. And it usually produces bitterness in the person that's doing it. A self-centered person is always thinking about me, mine, mine. All the time. We think about that. Here's a little story I heard. Little note here I may get you I had a little party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests and all. I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the candy, and I drank up all the tea. There's also who ate the cake and passed the pie to me. If you've been hurt, don't strike it back, and don't have a pity party. The next thing we'll see real quick, denial. Who? Me? I'm not hurting. Nobody hurt me. I'm bigger than that. There's a good Greek word for that called baloney. Just like walking through the snow when you're little, and I know we don't have too many snows in Texas, but I remember a couple of them. But I remember one time we had maybe a foot of snow, and I was just a little dude. And I don't know where it was walking, where I think out in the pasture, I, I don't remember what it was. And my dad was walking in front of me, and man, I was trying to keep up and step in those places where he stepped so I could, wouldn't have to go under the snow for two days second. Isn't that the way we're supposed to walk? Walk in Jesus' footsteps. I didn't know that at the time. I was just having fun walking through the pasture. Our job is to stay in the footprints of Jesus. That's where we'll find the strength in you. Next thing we'll see real quick is his footprints are filled with total trust. The key is found in 1 Peter 2, 23. And it says, And when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So if I'm going to walk in his steps, I must surrender my pain to the perfect judge, Jesus Christ. You probably heard the story about David and Goliath. Anybody not heard that story? Yes, I'm glad you have. But David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath, but Goliath was not the only giant that David had to face. You know that? The Bible says that King Saul was so tall, he stood head and shoulders above all the other men. After David killed Goliath, Saul became terribly jealous of David. The people saying, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. David played his part. And same for Saul. Yet Saul hated David and on many occasions took his spear and threw it at him trying to hit him with it. Saul hated David because of his popularity. Has anybody ever thrown a physical or maybe even a mental hurt towards you because they didn't like what you were doing? Maybe you were getting too much recognition. Maybe you were getting this or that, or maybe you had things they wanted 
didn't want to work for them like you did, and they're too spiritual for fear of God. They're going to come up, and they hurt. But David endured the suffering. The natural action is to, reaction is to pick up that spear and throw it back at old Saul. Hopefully hit him with it. But David didn't do that. He never retaliated against Saul. David endured the suffering. He didn't hang around and be a target very long. For Saul's, Saul's violence and abuse, he left the city. David did. Saul and his army pursued David to kill him. On one occasion, David and his buddies were hiding in a dark cave. Saul happened to enter the cave to relieve himself. He couldn't see David, but David could see Saul. David could have taken that moment to run his sword through Saul and been done with it. And legitimately so. But David didn't do that. In fact, when Saul left the cave, first, let me back up a second. What David did is slip up behind Saul as he was standing there and cut off a piece of his robe. What did he do that for? When Saul left the cave, David ran out and showed him a piece of cloth that he had just cut off his robe. And he said, in 1 Samuel 24, verse 11 and 12, Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the part of your robe, but I did not kill you. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. That's a strong man right there. He said, Saul, you tried to kill me. You would have killed me if you could have caught me. And all I've done is trying to do you a favor. And he says, but I refuse to put a hand against you. That's the Christian reaction right there. David refused to get even. He handed his suffering from Saul's hand over to God's hand. And God ultimately took care of the problem. The word permitted in verse 24, to be better translated, entrusted. It's the idea of handing something valuable to somebody else. I could, if I called Robert up here and I said, Robert, would you take care of my wallet? And it's got everything, it's got my pictures in there of all my family and all these things. Would you take care of it? And he could have said, yeah, I'll take care of it. Of course, I said, don't send the money either, but that's usually not an email. That's not a problem. But, but it's, it's entrusted. So we take somebody and entrust somebody to take care of it for us. Something valuable over to someone else. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 23 when it says that Jesus breathed out his last breath at the cross. And he cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It says God had all this figured out already. This is valuable. It should change my identification. Jesus is saying, God, take all that I am off of me. But I trust you're going. I trust you, so I'm going to you to take care of it, Father. If I trust you, Bob, enough to take care of my wallet, I trust you. 
what it means to entrust your pain to God. When you entrust your pain and your problems to God, you're taking your hands off your suffering and allowing God to store, to settle the store in His way and in His time. After all, He will judge justly. And here's the conclusion. Perhaps nobody in our generation is more qualified to speak about suffering and a young lady, probably not a young now, has been several years ago. Y'all remember the story of Joni Erickson Hyatt? Of course we do. Young lady that had potential unbelievable. She was a, a diver, high diver, if I remember right. I think she was a high diver in a couple different times. Anyway, she became a quadriplegic as a teenager because of a diving accident where she dove in a pool and was shallower than she thought that she really broke her neck and suddenly nerves and whatever from there. But because of her positive outlook on life, in the midst of suffering, she's inspired millions of people because of what she went through. In her book, Heaven, Your Real Home, she writes, and this is words, these are not my words, these are hers, suppose you had never in your life known physical pain, no sore back, no twisted ankle, no decayed molar. Well, if you had never had to use crutches or a walker, how could you appreciate the scarred hands with which Jesus would greet you when you get there? If you've never embarrassed, if you've never been never been embarrassed or felt ashamed, you could never grasp how much He loved you when He endured the spit from the soldiers. The spinelessness of his own disciples, the callousness of the crowd, the jeers from the mob, all for the love of God. Is it beautiful? What a story that young lady had. And she, she'll never walk another day. I believe, now I believe this, I don't know, but I believe she'll never walk a day in her life now because after that happened. That's been, if I remember right, about 30 years, hasn't it? This morning, what's keeping you from being in war with the Christ? Oh, you don't know what somebody did to me. You don't know what they said to me. They said something that hurt my feelings. I don't want to come to church anymore. That happens all the time. And yeah, we should be careful what we say and how we act. God, we thank you, Lord, for the time you've given us to come close this service. You know the needs of each man, woman, boy, and girl that's here today. We just ask that if there be anybody here this morning that does not know Jesus as their personal Savior, Lord, perhaps today they remember. We don't claim to be a super Christian church by any means. We make mistakes every day of the week. All we do claim to know a Savior is to get If you don't know the Savior, in just a moment we're going to sing a song.
It doesn't know. It doesn't matter what you know about me or anybody else in this room. But what you know about what Jesus makes all the difference. You do that. Okay. Your job is to the limits on the person and get them Because you know the heart of each person here. You know where they're at in life. You know where their failures are. You know where their desires are. Father, just give you a word today. Call it me. 